Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm Christopher Cook, and, and I'll be looking after this event uh, on your behalf. Um, can I just do some house notices first? Um, could you possibly make certain that mobile phones, uh, anything that might sing, dance, whistle, or create anything un uh, rewarding and unexciting is carefully turned off and stowed away? Um, can I remind you that you may not take pictures and or record the event, but we're recording the event and it will be available, as all these pre-performance talks are, as a podcast on the English National Opera website within a few days. So if you want to hear it again uh, or check anything, you can do that. The opera that we're going to see tonight began in a theatre about five minutes' brisk walk from where we're all sitting. After the huge success of Tosca, Puccini was looking for a new subject for an opera. He'd considered two things, Pelias, a Melisande, and then, amazingly, Les Miserables. Um, somewhere else got there later. Then, on a visit to London in the summer of 1900, friends of the composer took him to the Duke of York's theatre to a performance of David Belasco's Madame Butterfly, which was based on a story by John Luther Long. Puccini saw the show, but not really understanding English, was only greatly moved by Butterfly's plight. Nevertheless, after the performance, he rushed to the green room, embraced David Belasco, and begged to be allowed to make an opera from the play. Belasco, in his gloriously unreliable memoirs, later wrote, I agreed at once and told him he could do anything he liked with the play and make any sort of contract because it was impossible to discuss arrangements with an impulsive Italian who has tears in his eyes and both of his arms around your neck. Well, in choosing a story set in Japan, Puccini, I think, really revealed himself as a child of his own time. The end of the 19th century was indeed fascinated by all things Japanese. The Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists had fallen in love with Japanese woodblock prints, with the work of Utamaro in particular. Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo collected them. Toulouse-Lautrec copied their style, of course, in his great series of posters for the Music Hall in Paris. And as you may know, if you've read The Hair with Amber Eyes and its story of the collection of Netsky that was collected by Edmund de Waal's family, European collectors had begun at the end of the 19th century to collect Japanese artefacts, kimonos, ceramics, lacquer work, etc. So, a story like that of the geisha Chocho-san who falls in love with the American Lieutenant Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton was already preaching perhaps to a half-converted audience. Anyway, to help us understand Puccini's opera, we're joined by Katie Bird, who's covering the role of Butterfly, Murray Hipkin, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff, and Helen Wake, who is senior wigs and makeup technician for the company. And over there are some examples of her work that we'll be talking about. And you might also like to know that if you look at the screen, you can see images, production stills from the production that we're going to see tonight. Our last, but also our first guest, is Armin Schwartz, a Puccini scholar and a fellow at Birmingham University. Will you please welcome Armin Schwartz? Armin, it really does seem that Madame Butterfly belongs to that fashionable obsession at the end of the 19th century with all things Japanese. Yes, yes, of of course, although I think it's worth remembering that for Puccini, America probably seemed equally exotic to him and equally strange. So in a way, he's really sort of dealing with two exotic cultures instead of just one. 
how do we explain this, this fascination with the East, with Japan? I mean, one of the paradoxes is that actually Japan in 1905 will knock out the Russian Navy, and yet in the West and in America, it's seen as a kind of aestheticized, pretty, pretty place with uh, geishas and beautiful artistic works. No, no, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question. For me, at least for Puccini and for Italians, I mean, the, you know, there's so many Italians migrating to America um, at, at that moment, millions and millions of them, that I think for him, part of the fascination with Japan is paradoxically a way of thinking about Italians' own experiences of trying to fit into this new country and their own experiences of, of travel and fitting in. So in a way, looking to Japan is also a way to think about themselves. And is it also because it's another? It's, it's another culture that is significantly different from what we know in the West? No, 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 absolutely. And surely one of the things that Puccini recognized in the Belasco play, even if he didn't understand what was actually being spoken, is that this, this drama is drawing on you know, all sorts of 19th century operas where you have two cultures clashing with one another. So certainly that sense of a, of a very exotic culture and, and a meeting between worlds is something that would have instantly made sense to him as theater. And one wonders too if it's a response to the growing disillusion at the end of the 19th century with the industrial world, particularly in Europe, um, when suddenly the shoddiness of many of the goods produced and indeed the extraordinary consequence on people's lives was emerging. No, and I mean, in a way, that's another paradox because, on the one hand, absolutely like this fascination with exoticism as a way to get outside of industrialized Europe. On the other hand, I mean, Puccini, above all, loved. Belasco's high-tech lighting effects that were the most technologically advanced lights you could see in a theater. He was fascinated with sound recordings as a way to hear Japanese music. So in a way, he's using, I mean, if he's turning to a culture that seems very different from industrialized Europe, he's doing it with the most up-to-date technology possible. And it seems like it's both of those things are fascinating for him. I've often wondered this. Do you think he thinks that when he sees Madame Butterfly here at the Duke of York's Theatre in Belasco's production, he's actually seen Japan? Or is he aware that, in fact, it's a construct? It's invented? I think it's something in between. I feel like what he's fascinated by is the ability of theater and of the specific very, very technological theater to, to bring Japan, you know, to, to the stage. So in a way, I mean, I think he's at least fascinated by the fact that you can make this other world appear and maybe whether or not it's real is even secondary to him. That just the fact that you can bring something this different onto the stage so convincingly. Uh, and should one also see this as part of something that people have written about, particularly Edward Said, the great Palestinian scholar, that in a way Japan is feminized. It becomes Chocho San. The West is entirely masculine. It's Benjamin Pinkerton, Frank, Franklin Pinkerton. No, no, absolutely. I mean, that's true of this opera. That's true of, of earlier exoticist operas. It'll be, I mean, it, it's no accident that it's the Turin dotes the main character later. So, no, no, absolutely. The, the East is always primarily sort of embodied in a female character. Definitely. I'm going to stay with us. We'll talk more specifically about the opera in a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please now welcome our second guest, Helen Wake, who is Senior Wigs and Makeup Technician for English National Opera. Helen Wake. Helen, four splendid examples that were going to help us sitting there on the piano. What, in fact, do you make wigs out of? Uh, well, the wigs are, are real hair, nearly all of them. Um, this is Madame Butterfly's own wig, and uh, it is real human hair. We think it came from China, 
although we didn't buy it from China ourselves. But um, there aren't many uh, races of people that can grow hair that long. Um, so we do think it is Chinese hair. And that's a whole head of hair, one person's hair. Um, that is probably several people's heads of hair. Um, people's hair grows different lengths, and we would have kept just the very longest bits to put into that, into that wig. And how long would a wig like that take to make? Um, the second one on the piano is uh, a wig starting off. That's for our next production of Satyagraha. Um, that isn't the beginning process. There's uh, other work taking measurements to make that green shape, the green block that you see underneath it. Then the lace goes on, and then we attach hair individually into those holes of the lace from start to finish about two weeks. Is it a little like weaving, or is that me being very lay? It's more like carpet making than weaving. <laughs> Rugs, one might say. Rugs, indeed, yes. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. And is the wig particular to the actor who wears it? Um, in the first instance, yes. Um, the wig you see there is Mary Plaza's, uh, though she's not singing tonight. Um, the wig you will see tonight was originally made for Judith Howarth, and we altered it to fit Dina. Um, Mary's wig, she, Mary has a tiny little head, I don't know if you'll be seeing her later in the run, if you come back and see it again. She's very, very tiny, so that wig won't really fit anybody else. So uh, that tends to stay specifically for her. How on earth do you alter a wig? Well, we um, cut bits off it. You can see on the second one, we'd say cut the back piece off it mm. and cut the front piece off it. So you've just got the crown and then put on a new front and a new back and uh, then re-knot hair into the new bits of lace. Are the wigs for, for this production of Madame Butterfly different from other wigs that you might make for other shows here at English Opera? Well, as you see, they're not all real hair wigs. The chorus, uh, we've got a man's chorus wig, uh, third one along, and a lady's chorus wig, fourth one along. Um, the designer, Han Feng, uh, was very keen on using textiles rather than actual hair. And so those wigs are made of um, plastic onto a solid skullcap base. Um, so they are a particularly unusual thing for this particular production. The original uh, Madame Butterfly wig wasn't going to be real hair. It was going to be ribbon. Han Fen wanted it to be made of ribbon. And we made a ribbon wig, but the, uh, the wig supervisor, when uh, she first saw this, idea and concept and had to come up with it. She did not feel that it would work. Uh, Han Feng likes to have things put in front of her and say, yes, I like this, no, I don't like that. So on, uh, rather in secret, uh, Carol Hancock had that wig made because she knew the ribbon one was not going to look that luscious and that gorgeous. And then the director and Han Feng saw the ribbon one on stage and rather agreed that it didn't look quite as nice as they were hoping and they wanted Madame Butterfly to be the most beautiful creature. So Carol was able to say, here's one I made earlier <laughs> and produce this, this very beautiful wig. I'm, I'm fascinated by the textile wigs for the members of the chorus, male and female. Is that the first time that, 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 that you've been responsible for that kind of wig making? We don't actually make those. They're made by the hat department, but it's our job to put them on people and uh, attach them down. 
the men's wigs have to wear bald caps underneath, so they, they're cut right back in that with a Japanese look. Um, not all of our men need to have a plastic bald cap on, but um, the ones that do um, have to wear the bald cap underneath and then the hat sits on top of that. From what you're saying, the, the designer for the wigs is in fact the designer for the whole production. A uh, person that designs the wigs is, is, I haven't met an occasion where they're not the costume designer as well, yes. And, and how long do these wigs last? They can last a long time. Um, it depends how much abuse they get. Um, Madame Butterfly's wig, it's not curled, it doesn't get much heat treatment, it's just left long and luscious. And uh, that's still looking gorgeous. It's from when Madame Butterfly was first performed here. And we have wigs that can last 20 years, 30 years, but they're starting to look a bit sad. And they'd maybe do as a peasant character or somebody who's you know, not a very well-off type of person. Because um, the hair just deteriorates. If you're constantly putting it in rollers and it's having to heat it up to bake it and get the curl in, uh, it does suffer and deteriorate. So in the end, you have to make a new one. Helen, a purely personal question. Did you always want to be a wig maker? <laughs> um, probably I wanted to be a film star, but... <laughs> <laughs> Once you've got over that. <laughs> Lacking the looks and the personality, I thought I'd work backstage. <laughs> but, and, and how do you train to be a wig maker? I trained in hairdressing. Um, some courses, there are more and more courses now around the country, uh, will teach wig making as well as hairdressing. And uh, it's certainly a good thing to be able to do because it's a fairly rare skill and um, you can earn a nice bit of money doing it. Helen Wake, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and our next guests are Katie Bird and Murray Hipkin. Will you please welcome them both? Katie Bird's covering the role of Chocho San in this production and Murray Hipkin's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Katie Bird and Murray Hipkin. <laughs> Katie, I'm afraid you have to, as it were, speak for your supper before you're allowed to okay. sing for your supper. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Churchill San. Um, how do you see this character? Is she simply a victim who, in the end, uh, we, we weep at the end of this opera because she is so appallingly treated by not only her own family, but by the, the Americans too? Um, I don't think so. I think um, she's quite a feisty character. I'm going to just move the microphone oh. a little bit. There we go. Um, she's quite a feisty character. She makes um, fairly big decisions. Um, she decides to um, reject her religion and her culture because she wants to marry this man. So, um, no, I don't think she is a victim. She's astonishingly young, isn't she? How old do you think yeah, she is? Yeah, well, she's 15. So... Um, yeah, that's quite a big decision for a 15-year-old to make. And that raises another question. Do you think that she's innocent when it comes to uh, Pinkerton, or is she simply naive? That's a really hard question, because um, obviously this sort of thing is going on around them, and Suzuki even uh, makes reference to it during the opera and says, um, I've never heard of an American husband who comes back once he's left. So she knows it's going on, but then perhaps she is naive in... in you know, she's a teenage girl. You know, she's in love for the first time. She thinks she can change the man, I guess. And by that said, she's got no choice because she's been abandoned by her family, effectively, which is what is yeah. almost, more, almost the cruelest moment in this opera. Yeah. Um, in your own mind, if, when you're seeing this, does she remarkably, after the marriage, become somehow not 
Cho Cho San, but in fact, Madame Butterfly or Mrs. Pinkerton. Has she suddenly become a Western bride, do you think? No, I, th I think she, try she kind of plays at it, but um, I mean, she, she's still, um, no, I don't, I think she, yeah, she tries and makes reference to that. But deep down, no, I don't think. So all those kind of moments when Sharpless comes desperately to tell her what's really going on, when she tries to be a kind of American bride, are things that she's learnt. It's how, yeah. how to do it, but she yeah, doesn't really exactly. believe it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what I must do. Oh, you like American cigarettes? Oh, sorry, I'll get you American cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. and, and how demanding is the role for, for the singer? Uh, it's huge. I mean, she, she doesn't leave the stage. I think she maybe leaves... Well, she's in this production. She's still on stage, but she's not singing. Um, it's it's massive. It's uh, you need a lot of stamina. Is it the acting and being on stage all the time, Mr. Wanning, or simply the weight of the voice, uh, the weight of the voice required to sing the part? Um, both, really. Um, you obviously with the the acting is um, can be gut wrenching at times, and you have to give everything to be able to touch your audience so there's that but then you also have to have the strength the breath control for all the singing and do it without thinking about it so both really right what are you going to sing for us now um we're going to sing um one fine day of course thank you
heart. And when he's getting nearer, what's he say? What's he say? But I know butterflies, what he saying. I don't reply at all, and I hide before he gets there, perhaps to tease him. Katie Baird, thank you very much, and Murray Hipkin. Murray, um, Puccini, as far as we know, went to enormous efforts to get a kind of Japanese sound into Madame Butterfly, didn't he? Mm, indeed, yes. Um, some of that's achieved with the orchestration, of course, and, and uh, if you have a chance to look over into the pit, you'll see an enormous array of Japanese gongs. Cost a fortune. They've come in quite useful in one or two other pieces, but we usually we had to get them for... Madame Butterfly and any self-respecting opera house will have a set. Um, Japanese gongs, tuned gongs, and uh, of course the tam-tam, which we hear a few key moments in the score. And he also uh, likes to use this kind of reedy instruments. And, and in that little bit in the aria, which you think might be kind of nice and mellow on um, violas or clarinets or something, it's actually muted trumpets. And it's, it's, it's all these exotic little colours that, that crop up all over the place. But aside from that, the main way that he, get, he introduces the, um, the, the feeling of Japanese is actually by nicking Japanese tunes. It's quite simple. And you're, I've, I've dug out a few and found a wonderful website today. Have a listen to this one. You might recognize it. So most of you, exactly. Mikado, someone over there said it. Remember? But in, in Madame Butterfly, um, Christa was telling me earlier that Puccini was familiar with um, the Mikado and he actually nicked it from Sullivan rather than from Japan, but 
we'll, we'll have to have check that out. But more than that, actually, there was a score, <laughs> oh, a score um, that, that, that is in the library at, at, at his house, um, which, which is marked up that he was clearly listening to it. Right, that, right. So in, in the opera, um, this, this tune is almost always associated with Yamadori, who's the rich suitor that um, Sharp, um, Goro tries to marry Butterfly off to when Pinkerton's left, and it goes like this. There it is, clear as anything. And um, Katie referred earlier to the, um, the, the, the time where um, Butterfly offers Sharplet. She, she goes to offer him the, the Japanese pipe to smoke and then realises that she's actually an American housewife now, not Japanese at all. And um, so she, cha- she corrects herself and offers, offers him um, American cigarettes. But interestingly, underneath that, you get a very dainty version of the same Japanese tune, which seems to be contradicting that whole idea. So that's, um, that's uh, a couple of examples. Um, and we heard earlier about, the, in fact, the, the two exotic cultures. And before, before I close, just want to um, uh, do a couple of other bits. Um, you all, I mean, some of you may well be hearing this for the first time tonight. And the, the first use of the Star Spangled Banner is, you can't really miss it. It's such, such a shock. But um, later on, it comes back time and time again, quite often when Butterfly's talking about being American. And um, there's a great example which, which sort of marries a Jap- Japanese and that American tune together when, when um, she's talking about the fact that he's forgot- um, Pinkerton has forgotten her. <clears throat> This bit's Japanese. And then you'll recognize this. Oh, whoops, sorry. And then the child comes out, and of course the child is, is the one thing which is a, a, a real combination of the two, the Japanese and the American, that's come about because of this meeting of cultures. Katie's talked about the demands it makes on, 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 on Madame Butterfly, the, the, the singer who takes the role. Mm. Is it equally demanding on other singers? Uh, in some ways, yes, but not so much. The main demand, as Katie mentioned, is the, the sheer stamina of, of the role and the fact that she, even though she doesn't sing all the way through, she's certainly rarely off the stage. In fact, as, as Katie said, in this production, not at all off the stage. She's there that whole time once she's come on. Um, Pinkerton, of course, gets the whole of Act Two off. So he can pop and see a movie or something. But, um, they, I mean, they, all, the, all the roles do require big, big sort of Italian Puccini voices. Um, there are a couple of, of smaller roles, of three smaller roles, Yamadori, Kate Pinkerton, and, and Goro to a lesser extent. Goro is a character tenor who, who does mostly conversational um, scenes. Um, but I think one of the, dem- the big demands, though, is that not only are they required to sell Butterfly especially required to do all this huge lyric and, and dramatic singing that Katie, you know, just heard a little example of, where, where the weight in the voice has to be carried higher up than might be normally considered healthy. And in fact, 
this was this role was considered to be a career ender for for you know at times and, and people don't take it on lightly. Sorry, Katie, didn't mean to say it out loud, but but um, it's very very easy to sort of do damage. But um, at the same time, you have to be very very good at all the kind of talky stuff and all the conversation, all the parlando. Um, where the text is really incredibly important. So, yes, it does stretch people in both directions. There's no doubt about that. Murray, thank you very much Pleasure. indeed. Um, Armand, is Madame Butterfly a two-act opera or is it a three-act opera? Well, Puccini's plan from the very beginning had always been for it to be a two-act opera with a very long second act. He broke it into th into three acts after the first performance was such a disaster. I think it's, I mean, and he, he left it that way. I think it can, on stage today it can very well work either way. So, so, I mean, two acts was the original conception, but I think at this point three acts is completely acceptable. But if you do break it before the last scene and that becomes the third act, does it change the nature of the piece in some way? I think it does a bit. I mean, the, 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 the second act is all about, you know, butterfly being at home and her home and trying to trying to be a wife and trying to be an American. And I feel like to have that domestic scene set off both from the first act and from the third act sort of focuses something about her plight. It, it, it just makes it a little more pointed. You'd still see that if the acts were connected, but I think it somehow makes her, her struggle and what she's actually trying to do just a little bit more focused. And the other thing it does, of course, is to separate out the arrival of Americans and America. So, so that act two in, becomes entirely Japanese, the rejection mm -hmm. of, of Prince Yamadoro, uh, the uh, knowledge that, 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 that Pinkerton is not quite what he seems to be, but he's separated, and that makes a difference too, doesn't it? No, no, absolutely. And I think one more thing, just to continue that it does, is, you know, it, you know, the, the third act begins exactly, essentially, where the second act ends. And somehow just, the f I mean, if there's an intermission and you feel like that that time, that waiting has been prolonged, like there's something just shocking about coming back to the theater and having a woman sitting exactly where she was sitting before. So it just makes the wait and the arrival even more tense and even more poignant. K Katie was reminding us earlier that Butterfly is 15. Should we be shocked at how young she is in this opera? I think we probably should be. I mean, you know, it's something that, I mean, details like that are the sort of thing that a composer could easily, I mean, those are the sort of details that get lost when you adopt uh, a spoken text into, a, into an opera, but it's clearly still there. It's there at a moment where you notice it. And I, I mean, I almost feel like the way Puccini designs it is so that you sort of notice it and you're shocked, and then you forget about it. But I think that the, the forgetting in the gorgeous duet is sort of meant to be sh So you feel yourself like realizing it and then forgetting about it, and that's strange, too. And, and, and I suppose, to be very basic, um, it is unlikely we would find a 15-year-old singing this role. No, no, it's, it, it's impossible. I mean, and so, you know, on the one hand, he's trying, you know, in all sorts of ways to make this sort of authentically Japanese and very realistic. But on the other hand, there are these things that are just never going to fit into that. Do you, I have a sort of feeling that Puccini changed his mind about Pinkerton um, in the course of the journey of this opera. In the very first performance, um, he didn't have that last, last act aria, which makes him quite a sympathetic figure. Do you think by the end of the opera, we're almost beginning to think there is a case for Pinkerton? I think something changes with Pinkerton, definitely. He, to me, he... 
I, I hear the whole first act is very much sort of from his perspective, and in most of the, the huge duet at the end of the first act, you really feel like you're in his head and just being sort of enraptured by his music. Um, and then, I mean, partially because he has so little to do in the second half of the opera, he just becomes this almost useless leftover who doesn't quite have things to do on stage, doesn't quite have enough to sing. To me, the really telling moment is Butterfly's very first entrance into the opera is off stage. She's singing off stage, and then she comes on stage. Um, Pinkerton's very, very last music in the opera is him singing off stage, and just this voice off stage. And so I feel like that there's a sort of reversal of, of roles between them that's that's pointed out by having them, you know, sort of switch roles, that they're both these offstage voices at the beginning and the end. This production, which has, has a history to it, uh, uh, which we're looking at, pictures on the screen, always slightly f wrong foots me, because I've always wanted to believe that Sharpless in this opera, the consul, is the kind of moral center. He's the guy who gives me my bearings on what I ought to feel. But somehow in this production, maybe rightly so, Sharpless is just as compromised as all the others. No, no, I agree with that. I mean, he's one of these characters that you can interpret and, and play different ways. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, on the argument for him being the sort of moral center of the opera, he's clearly paired with Suzuki, that they're the two people th that understand what's going on, that are sympathetic either to Pinkerton um, or to Butterfly. At the same time, I mean, both of them, but especially Sharpless, are, I mean, they're completely passive. They know what's going on. They're melancholy about it. They're sympathetic, but they do nothing. So, I mean, he's the moral center, but he also, to me at least, seems fairly compromised. And I, to me at least, this production actually gets him right, or at least, you know, corresponds with how I view him. There also, in a sense, are two innocent women here. There is obviously Butterfly, but there's Kate Pinkerton, too, who's being asked to take on a child that her father, uh, her husband, rather, has fathered uh, on, a, on a Japanese girl and take her home, um, the child home, as her own. Well, to me, I mean, I think I probably disagree with you slightly here, too. To me, Kate is a very creepy character. Um, <laughs> she was meaner in, in earlier versions of the libretto that never, never got developed. But just this woman who, who shows up and takes the child away, who says almost nothing, to me, she can easily just become this sort of very disturbing character, partially because she says so little and sings so little. I feel that she's closer probably to the, you know, to the princess and Swar Angelica that, that Puccini wrote later, like just one more woman who intrudes on a space and sort of, you know, takes something away from you. That's very interesting. So maybe we ought to play her as an older woman rather than as Pinkerton's own age, that, that there is some more complex dynamic there. Yeah, you could certainly do that. To me, I mean, in this production, she looks so different from everybody else on stage, just in terms of costume, and she's always physically set apart from all the other characters. I mean, I think that's another way of doing it, too. She, like, she just looks like this woman that has, has just no understanding of the world around her. I mean, either of her husband's previous life or of the, the woman who's about to die. So to me, just even setting her apart, she just looks like I'm, you know, in some sense, I'm, I'm destroying this world and I have, have no sense of what it even entails. Do, do you feel that Madame Butterfly marks something of a new direction for Puccini? Yes, you know, no, absolutely. I feel like Madame Butterfly is really the turning point in his career. He'd spent the, the previous decade writing operas 
that are, I mean, that are all about European cities, Paris or Rome, that his audiences would have been intimately familiar with. And he had a lot of sort of realistic musical techniques that went along with that. Starting with Butterfly and then continuing really for most of his career, he suddenly becomes much more interested in exotic locations and things that are more distant from the audience. He also becomes interested in, I think, sort of more mysterious music. Butterfly has this famous offstage humming chorus, which isn't realistic in any conventional sense of the word, but there's going to be offstage humming in almost every opera Puccini writes from Butterfly on. So it seems like he's interested both in, in you know, less familiar locations and just in sort of strange sounds that the listener doesn't quite know how to process that aren't, aren't quite realistic or explicable. The impossible question. <laughs> what is the enduring appeal of this play? Why is it that it never actually, even in um, productions that aren't completely successful, it never fails emotionally? It's, it, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, it must partially be because the characters are somewhat confusing. Should we be sympathetic to Pinkerton at all, or is he completely awful? You know, to what extent is... I mean, as, as you said, is Butterfly a victim or not? So I think the characters are ambiguous enough that you can keep coming back to the work and be moved by it. You can stage it in different ways. Um, I think that's part of it. I also think that, in, I mean, to go back to where you started, in contrast to earlier exotic operas, I really feel like Butterfly speaks to a set of much more contemporary concerns about people not just being exotic, but trying to assimilate um, into a new culture about what happens with, with mixed race children or something like that. So I feel like Butterfly actually, however unintentionally, raises a set of concerns that are very much just still with people in a way that, you know, the concerns of Locke may aren't in the same, same way. Armand, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, we have time for a few questions. If you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up and the roving mic will come. We've got one in the front row. Um, I'd like to hear something about the puppet, the child puppet. Um, I'm not sure anyone can talk about the child puppet specifically. <laughs> uh, there, there was a little bit in the Evening Standard tonight um, that implied that, as a puppet, um, it could do more than what a real child could. That may be true. I think you're going to have to make up your own mind whether you think for yourself. Um, I think, because I don't think there's anyone here who can speak directly to it. Do we? Do you want to swing the microphone in front of you? on the previous production and it's to be so small and so young the right age for that child it's extremely difficult to be for them to be on stage with a soprano at full belt and the sopranos always have to put their hands over the children's ears when they really get going and it's it is a difficult for the children to act as well that they're feeling sad and so at that age is impossible and um so this puppet was tried. I'm not sure it's the first time it's been done, but it was tried in this production and has been a great success. People are weeping at that little puppet. <laughs> and I mean, I think another thing the puppet does is, I mean, Butterfly is clearly a puppet in a lot of ways too. And in this production, it starts, she has these, you know, pieces of fabric sort of wrapped around her. And then so she's just, I mean, so she herself is, is physically being pulled by strings really from the beginning to the end. So I think the puppet also just sort of makes you think about the, the human characters and to what, what extent they're free or what, what extent everybody is being 
you know, pulled one way or another in this production. Here we are reading the puppet future, which I would simply add. The other thing I think it reminds us is the this is the product. It draws attention to what the relationship between Pinkerton and Butterfly is, because the puppet is unusual and unexpected. You constantly have to think about the nature of the relationship that has produced that child, uh, and it becomes sometimes quite uncomfortable. I think going back to what Armand was saying about contemporary debates and discourses. One more question at the back. Yes. Oh, the puppeteer's here. Oh. So I don't know if I can say anything more. <laughs> what you've said, maybe I shouldn't say anything, but um, just to say, I guess, um, what, the, what the article is saying about how a, what, what a puppet can do that a child can't do, which is, of course, because the puppet doesn't, can't actually move its face. You can impose your, your own expression, your own feeling onto that, onto that being on stage. So it can sort of distill an emotion which obviously a, which a child, which an actor can't really do in the same way. So it becomes much more bigger, much much more epic. So I think that's why. I hope. <laughs> Thank you. Do we have another question? Yes. In the, in the second row here, the microphone is coming. I wonder how long it takes for you when you, Katie, when you first were taught, told that you're going to sing Madame Butterfly. How far away was that? Three months? A month? What, what's the time span? Um, it was at, it wasn't actually a long time. Um, it was, I think maybe four months, five months. Um, I mean, realistically, for someone to learn this role and to be singing it, it takes, I mean, years to to for you to be able to sing it the way that you would want to sing it. So um, yeah, I literally as soon as I found out, I sort of got onto the case. Do we have another question? Ladies and gentlemen, then we have a small treat for you, an unexpected treat. We have one more piece of music. Katie and Murray are going to sing and play another piece of the score. You better tell us first of all what it is, Katie. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, it's just after um, Sharpless has given up trying to read the letter that Pinkerton has sent saying that he's not going to be seeing her again. Uh, he's not coming back to see her, um, and um, she kind she's she's talking to the child, and she says, "Would you like to know what, the, darling, what this gentleman's suggesting?" And then this is what she sings. Yeah. Rehearse this bit, but never mind. <laughs> Shall I tell you, darling, what this gentleman imagined? Please listen! <laughs> 
Ladies and gentlemen, some thanks. Thanks to all of you uh, for being here for the questions, um, but also particular thanks just to Katie Bird and Murray Hipke for that wonderful bonus at the end. I'm scarcely really a dry eye here, I think. Um, but also thanks to Armand Schwartz on my right and to Helen Wake and the Wigs. Thank you all very much indeed for being with us.